everybody, and welcome to the Money Made Easy podcast. We're your hosts, Angelica and Tisha. We're here to make it easier to talk about and learn about all things money, earning it, saving it, and investing it. So let's talk money, honey, on to this week's show. Hello, everybody. Well, we are so excited today. We have such an amazing guest on. We have Helena Bowen. She's a speaker coach and a speech writer. She has helped with over 150 TED and TEDx speaker clients, 65 million views online, 20 featured as the talk of the day on TED in 35 different language translations. She believes storytelling is the best way to lead, inspire, and persuade, and to Today, we're going to talk to her about how speaking and public speaking, whether it's online or on a stage, can help grow your business and make you more money. So let's welcome Helena. Hi, Helena. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yes. Thank you for being here. Can't wait so to talk excited. about money. <laughs> yes. All things money. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, why don't you start out with telling us a little bit of background about how you got into speech writing? Uh, do you go to school to become a speech writer? How does that work? Tell us all the good things and yeah. uh, where you've gotten to today and what you're doing. Sure. So I came to this super accidentally. I actually went to film school. I intended to be you know, in Hollywood for the entire rest of my career working as like a director or a cinematographer. And I started working in Hollywood as a camera assistant and very quickly realized that I hated it. I thought <laughs> it was going to be super creative and it turned out it was super technical. You're, you basically just have to turn into this like photography expert nerd um, <clears throat> who like moves really heavy cases around set. <laughs> and actually, I ended up injuring my back, which was a huge bummer at the time, but it actually ended up being like a massive blessing because I was really hating my job, but I wasn't willing to admit to anyone that I was hating my job. Mm -hmm. And so when I injured my back, they were like, you can't lift anything for at least eight weeks. And so that kind of forced me down a different path. I started working as an assistant director, which is basically the stage manager of a film set. So they kind of make the schedules, they wrangle all the actors, they get everyone through hair and makeup and wardrobe and make sure everyone's doing the right thing at the right time. And I love that job so much. It was so much fun. Um, I just enjoyed so much kind of interfacing with every single person on a film set. Film sets are massive. They have like mm -hmm. 50 plus people together in all of these different departments. And I loved kind of coordinating all of that. However, I did not love the hours <laughs> um, <laughs> because what they don't tell you in film school and what you find out in the real world is that the minimum working hours on set is 12 hours. And since I was the first person there and the last person to leave, it was more like 14, 15, 16 mm -hmm. hours a day, minimum five days a week, six days a week sometimes. And like, that's your year. And so it really, like, even though I loved the work so much, it was pretty clear that the film industry was never going to change. Um, and actually, I'm hoping with coronavirus, it is forced to kind of rethink some of those labor policies. Mm -hmm. But it got me kind of thinking on other things that I really liked doing. And I went home to, or I didn't go home, but I went back to Boston, which is where I went to college. And I hung out with all of my college friends and they were so nerdy and so academic. And I was like, I miss this part of me. Like Hollywood is all about style and fashion and like who mm -hmm. knows who and celebrity. And I missed the academic side of my life. So, you know, I started thinking about whether or not I could get involved with TED or TEDx because to me that was kind of like the last vestiges of academia in my life was watching TED and TEDx talks when I was at mm -hmm. home in between all of these film sets. And so I went to a TEDx in Los Angeles. I'm not going to say which one. And I was super excited. I thought I'd get involved with it. And then it was terrible. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it no. was so bad. Um, and so that really got me thinking like, oh, maybe I should do this myself. Like maybe it can be a little kind of side thing to my Hollywood career. So I went to Ted's training in Vancouver at their annual conference. And immediately I was like, these are my people because wow. everyone was so smart and so kind of engaged in the world and wanted to have all of these really thoughtful, interesting conversations. But then Ted also has this side of it that's entertainment, right? At the end of the day, TED is infotainment. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't see that as a bad thing necessarily because I mm-hmm. think Ted's success depends on people being entertained enough to want to watch these otherwise often very nerdy, rigorous, kind of archaic topics. And so I decided to start doing it as a side yeah. hustle. And then the side hustle grew, grew massive <laughs> overnight. Wow. So, yeah. So I went from, you know, being an assistant director, I, I got a job at HBO and started working in the studio, which was phenomenal in terms of hours um, because it's more of like a normal office job. And then the entire time I was at HBO, I was doing TED and TEDx speaker coaching as a side hustle. So, and eventually I decided, okay, time to leave HBO and just do this full time. And that's where I've been ever since. Awesome. Wow. That's amazing. That is so great. It's a very similar story that I had kind of, like I went to college for film and then I ended up changing to communication studies because I realized that TV and film was just not the right fit for me. And, and then that's why I got into comms. But um, I mean, I didn't end up, you know, having this big successful um, speeching thing, but that's amazing and so inspiring to hear. Yeah. I mean, it just goes to show. And I think it's one of those things that in college, I was like acutely aware of the fact that your major has almost no bearing on your success in the real world. Um, My other major was Hispanic literature, which has come in handy zero times. (laughs) But I kind of knew that in all honesty, I did the the major just because I kind of wanted to keep up my Spanish. But then I was also bound and determined to study abroad in Spain, which I did. And I worked at a television station there. Oh, wow. So yeah. But it's, and it's one of those things, like if I had a college age kid now, I would be like, do something that you're interested in, but it don't worry if it doesn't end up being your forever thing, because yeah. I, almost none of my friends are doing what they went to college for. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so typical. Yeah. I think yeah. that's, well, I, think- I think that's more the norm than, than mm-hmm. the people. I think there's more of those people than the people that went to college and they're doing exactly what they studied in college. Unless totally. you're a doctor or an attorney or something, then it's rare that that happens. Totally. <laughs> yeah. So, well, tell us a little bit about your money background. When you were growing up, Did was budgeting, was that talked about? Did you, you know, how did that uh, shape where you are now as far as handling money and dealing with money? Sure. Yeah, I have two answers to that. So I think on the one hand, my parents were amazing savers. Like you would, they have a lot of money. You would never know because they're very frugal. They, you know, they could shop at all the highest end luxury stores, but they shop at like Target, you know? So um, I think I learned a lot of great skills around frugality from them. Mm -hmm. And that certainly came in handy right after college when I was working on all of these film sets for like $100 a day. Um, but I think there was another side of it too, which is that my mom is, has always been kind of like, for lack of a better word, the budget veterinarian in, in our town. And so I really growing up saw her kind of bending over backwards and like doing all of this amazing work for her clients, but at a fraction of the price of anyone else in town. And so, I mean, I think that kind of ingrained two different things in me. I mean, obviously it gave me a great sense of like service to clients because I've just seen her working with clients my entire life. And, but on the other hand, it also just kind of made me like skeptical. Like I always had the skepticism of the other veterinarians in town who were making all of this money because she kind of had an attitude around like, you know, almost that it was like bad for them to be making more money, even though in reality, it's like they were the norm and she was the exception. Um, and so like, I, I don't think she raised her prices more than like once in my entire childhood, you know? And so I think it, it made me kind of feel like to some degree that I had to just serve and serve and serve clients, but not that like charging too much was, problematic. Mm -hmm. And that's something that it's been taking me years to get over. I always like, I always think things are going to be like, I I always assume people's prices are like cheaper than they are and stuff like that. And not like, oh, I can't afford it, but more like, oh my God, I'm almost always consistently undercharging (laughs) (laughs) because I just like grew up in this context where my mom was charging like rock bottom prices. For everything. And so I don't think I really understood like 
the norm. How, yeah. I didn't understand the norm. I didn't understand how like pricing works. I also didn't understand that like in many ways, and I've learned this now for sure as an adult owning a business, in many ways, charging a high price can be really a service to people because I know for myself that when I invest in something and it's a really high ticket item, um, like a course or a coaching package or something like that, I am going to make sure I do the work and I'm going to make sure I like get my money out of it. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I buy like a $27 mini course online, like there's a pretty damn good chance that I'm never going to open that course or do it. And so that's something I've had to learn over time is that you know, um, charging more financially isn't necessarily like greedy or bad. Sometimes it can actually be really mutually beneficial for both you and the customer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important lesson to learn as an entrepreneur, especially because like that rate of like, what to, to what, like, how much do I charge is, I feel like a question for many people, but when you come into that background of like, well, like almost feeling a little guilty for charging more. It's, it's a lot, it's a big hurdle to get over. So, um, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of had the same experience and for so many times, like I started with family photos at like $50 an hour. And then it was like, it just got to a point that where the, you start to learn your boundaries, but, um, yeah, it's definitely a tough hurdle. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, of course. No, it is, it's been a really interesting experience. And I think part of the, the tricky part of it too, is that, um, you know, when I started working for Ted and TEDx, like the entire TEDx, like all of TEDx's, there's 3000 TEDx's in the world and all of them are run pretty much exclusively by volunteers. So Whoa. for the first, yeah. So the first few years that I was doing work with, um, TEDx mile high, I was told I was completely unpaid and I was working, you know, 10, 20 plus hours a week for them, which is I don't find it to be exploitative. Like I'm very glad I did it because I got so much experience, but then it was really hard to transition into being a paid employee and a paid contractor in the TED and TEDx world. And I actually, I thought it was going to be much easier than it was. I thought people would, because everyone knows the value of a TED talk. Everyone wants a TED talk. TED talks are now like the business card in America. And so I think people understand the value of that, but they don't understand the value of coaching. And a lot of that is because the organization has, is mostly run by volunteers. So most of the TEDx coaches in the country and in the world are volunteers. And so it's a hard mental leap for people to make to like pay for a coach yeah. for mm -hmm. that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. But it's so important. And if it is going to be your business card, you yeah. know, your online business yeah. card, the the most important business card you could possibly have, then it needs to be the most amazing talk you ever give. And of course you should be coached for it. Totally. I mean, I guess coming from, you know, kind of the world of Hollywood too and acting, I mean, everybody's got acting coaches and, you know, I mean, you certainly wouldn't do a play without a director who's coach. That's what a director is, is coaching totally. you on how to act. And so it, to me, it definitely seems uh, so logical um, and shocking that anyone would think of doing it without having someone coach them. So. Yeah. I'm curious to see if it becomes more of a norm in like the next five to 10 years. I'm definitely an outlier. Like there's a million and a half business coaches. There's a million and a half life coaches, but there's, I really only have a handful of competitors. And I think it's for that reason that most people don't ever think about even having a speaker coach. They know they need a business coach and they know that they should have like a therapist or a life coach or something, but they don't think about having a speaker coach or like a communication strategist. Yeah. Wow. Well, I think we take it, take it for granted. I mean, we just think, oh, we're talking, so we're communicating, but there's so much to, you know, having a topic. And like you said before, like having a very dry, boring topic and trying to turn it into something that people actually want to engage in and listen to for seven, 10 minutes, you know, yeah. it's very hard to do. And so I think people just take it for granted. And then when they see how hard it is, then hopefully they'll come calling you and, yeah. You know, make it better. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things too, where because people don't really see the behind the scenes of it, like they don't mm -hmm. understand, like when you look at a lot of the best speakers on TED.com, like Ken Robinson and Brene Brown and Simon Sinek and all of these people, like they don't realize that there was a ton of coaching behind the scenes. Like mm -hmm. every TED speaker has both a curator and a coach coaching them. 
So, you know, and that's usually for weeks or months before they go on stage. And I think people oftentimes think that they can't do a TED or TEDx talk because they see the final product and they're like, oh, those people must have just been amazing right from the get-go, whereas that's not true. It's a product of coaching and and time and preparation, like everything else in life. Well, because when it's done right, it does look effortless and it Mm -hmm. looks so, they're so comfortable doing it that yes, you know, everybody thinks they're just so good and they're so comfortable and they're so, you know, and it's like, well, yeah, they are because they practiced it so much. I mean, totally. that I did stand up for a while and it was the same thing. And people were like, but the really funny people just get up there like, you know, and go off and just improv it all. And I'm like, no, even Robin Williams, he would practice his bits that looked like they were improv. And it's like, I, I hate to break it to you, but no, <laughs> yes, improv is improv, but sometimes that works amazing. And sometimes I've seen that flop. Totally. But, but they also still practice improv constantly exactly so even exactly. if it's not the exact same show right no that's yeah. the thing too it's like that's not the first time they've done that 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 premise that premise totally. has been done a bunch of times they've you know perfected it so they can plug just about anything into that and it'll work <laughs> so yeah there's a lot behind the scenes well in talking about the the whole pricing situation don't you feel like as women, that's a uncomfortable subject in addition to, I mean, I, I hate to stereotype things, male, yeah. female, but I do feel like it's a, it's a harder thing for females mm-hmm. to price themselves high and value themselves the way they should be. Absolutely. And I mean, I think we're seeing that now, right, with coronavirus, when all of these uh, traditionally underpriced things like teachers and mm-hmm. nurses, who of course mm-hmm. are traditionally women, <laughs> mm-hmm. are now super high in demand. And I think everyone's kind of realizing the value of that labor now that they're at home homeschooling their kids for like hours every day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I never, like no one ever taught me to negotiate you know, I didn't know that people negotiated their wages or their Mm -hmm. salaries. Like, you know, going back to like the way things used to be, both of my parents have been in the same careers for 40 plus years. Like they've been doing the exact same thing basically since they graduated from college. And so, and I, on the other hand, have had Like, I can't even count the number of jobs that I've had (laughs) since college. Like, I've had so many different employers, which is part of being in Hollywood. You have, like, a new employer every month, basically. Mm -hmm. But Sometimes every week. (laughs) Sometimes every week. Sometimes, like, multiple employers in a week. Like, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. And so I really had no idea for the first few years that I was working in Hollywood that anyone negotiated their wages. I really thought it was just, like, the producer calls you up, they offer you, you know, 200 a day and that's what it is. Like, that's how I thought it went. Right. And, and then I ran into this situation where I was on a film set and it was actually a long running TV show. So I was on that set for, I think, seven months in a year. And I was, I just noticed that there was this massive disparity between me and my colleague. We were in the same department. He was just above me, a man. And I found out partway, like I was very frustrated throughout the entire first few months of the show that I felt like I was picking up all the slack constantly that I was like working my ass off and that he wasn't pulling his weight. And then come to find out that he makes $30,000 more than I do. No. And I was shocked. The outrage. I was so mad. And of course he bought like a brand new Mercedes Benz and was driving it around set and whatever. And I was like, my work bought that Mercedes Benz basically. I'm like picking up the slack and then he's making 30 freaking thousand dollars more. (laughs) Like I was so mad. I don't think I've ever been more mad in my life. (laughs) Um, And so I went to the producers and tried to kind of like, plead my case, but I didn't know what I was doing. I had no, like I had never negotiated before in my life. In retrospect, I did a terrible job. And unfortunately, like they gave me kind of like a pity raise is what I would call it. Like it was so sad. I don't remember what the number was exactly, but I think it was like an additional $200 a week or something like didn't even come close to like you know, evening out the balance. And Hollywood can definitely do that. And I mean, sure, I'm sure all companies can do that because they have this 
you know, expectation of, oh, we don't want to pay more than that role is worth and then set a standard and other people expect to be paid that and whatever. Um, but that just left such a bad taste in my mouth. And I, I actually think that TV show is kind of like the beginning of the end of my career in Hollywood because it was like such a frustrating experience specifically around that rate issue. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. same, like every job I have ap- had after that, like I didn't, I still didn't know to negotiate the opening, you know, offer. Like I just assumed mm. that like the company offers you $60,000 a year and that's what you get case closed, you yeah. know? And then I, when I was in corporate world, I would talk with some of my other friends and like now my fiance, we worked at the same company and he was making significantly more than I was for the same job because he knew to negotiate on that first offer. I had no idea. I just accepted Mm. it. I think that's the case. We've heard that time and time again on this show, unfortunately, Yeah, that women, when the percentage of women that are negotiating is so low, (laughs) it's just, yeah, because uh, it's, I mean, we haven't been taught and yeah. we don't know how. And even if we do get the idea to do it, not knowing how to do that is mm-hmm. is huge. And I feel like, you know, I feel, I think that is more something that guys are taught growing up. You know, you sure. got to learn how to negotiate. You got to learn how to sell yourself. And um, yeah, I mean, it goes against all the, like the feminine stereotypes too. We're like, mm-hmm. we're, we're supposed to be good and like people pleasing and kind mm-hmm. and like, know our place and like all of those horrible things, you know, Um, (laughs) So to then confront someone, not that it's a confrontation, but to like confront someone around money, it feels really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Super hard. And having Mm -hmm. that confidence too, to do it. I mean, yeah, you can be like, okay, I know I need to do it, but then it's like actually doing it is the hard part. You're like, crap, like, what do I say? What do I do? Yeah. That's, it's tough. Yeah, for sure. And then even when I became an entrepreneur, I really like did not for the first year that I had my own business, did not know how to bring up money at all. Like every sales call that I was on, I would kind of wait for the potential client to like ask me the price. Now I know, of course, you're supposed to take the lead and present your prices to the client. They're not supposed mm-hmm. to have to ask you for those prices. Um, but I really thought like, okay, I'll just put my prices on my website and then we never have to have a conversation about it. <laughs> and so I totally avoided that. And then, <laughs> you know, my sales were abysmal and, you know, it just did not work for the first year. And I was massively, massively, massively undercharging as well because I had this kind of whole idea around like, oh, I'm charging for an hour of my time. But not recognizing the fact that like getting the client, Mm -hmm. starting that conversation, doing all the behind the scenes work, doing all the marketing, like everything was adding up to that one hour of client work. And so I just was not charging at all what I should have been charging. And and I didn't have anyone to tell me otherwise. So thank God for business coaching, you know? Yeah. And all of your training that you did previous that gives you the knowledge to even coach them as a part of what you need to be getting paid for. Oh, totally. Yeah. You're paying for my years of experience. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's, it's so hard. I mean, I complain about this all the time. Like the thing that is most missing in our school system is absolutely financial literacy. Like, yes. Oh, yes. Why? Why is that not a thing? I it's don't ridiculous. It is ridiculous because mm-hmm. they profit on like us being ignorant and totally. knowing that like we won't know how to do things. So we're like, oh, let's just either hire someone else to do it for us or make mistakes and have to pay late fees and all the other things. Totally. <laughs> yes. I know. Mm-hmm. So sad. Well, you know. Yeah. Hopefully, I feel like the the conversation is moving more towards that. So hopefully, soon we'll get some things yeah. better things in place. Um, well, let's dive into how, so if someone knows they need to be public speaking, knows they need to be more of a voice for their brand, what are some ways that we can start doing that? Baby steps to big steps. You know, yeah. I don't think you can just, oh, okay, I'm going to start speaking more for my company. Oh, I'll sign up for a TEDx talk. Boom. Yeah. It just doesn't <laughs> quite happen like that. I don't think. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so, so the reason why I'm excited to talk about this, especially during quarantine right now. Mm-hmm is because I think a lot of people see public speaking as this super inaccessible thing that like only the top, top people do it. Um, And that's first of all, not true at all. 
But the best way to get public started public speaking today is on video, on camera, and on podcasts like this. And those are things that you can start doing today from home. So I always recommend that my clients, especially business owners and entrepreneurs, that they get on video as much as possible. And, and on stage too, when that opens back up. But the reason why is because when you think about the experience of watching someone on camera, whether that's on IGTV or YouTube or Facebook video or whatever, that is the closest experience for most business owners of what it would actually be like to work with you, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to writing, that's not really the same kind of like experience. And so I encourage entrepreneurs, business owners, even employees of all types to get on video because what I've found is that when you start showing up on video more often and when you get on stage more often, all of these people who would have been cold leads become like piping hot leads and you jump on a sales call with them and they are just totally ready to buy. Like Mm -hmm. I've found the more that I get on video, the easier for lack of a better word, my sales calls are because when we get on a sales call, it's not the first time they've ever spoken to me or heard from me. They've probably watched, you know, five, 10 more videos of me speaking online. And so they've already kind of gotten a taste of what I'm about and just by even them booking a sales call, they probably are already pretty committed. Whereas if you don't have that presence on video or online and you book a sales call, it's truly more of like a test. Like, am I going to like them or not? I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. But they're taking the call because they already know they like you. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Because they've already gone down this wormhole of your content. So I really do. And I think this is going to become more and more of a thing as time goes on. We're obviously living in the era of personal branding. So right now people would much rather buy largely from people than companies. And you're especially seeing that in people in like companies' responses to coronavirus, right? The companies that acted the most human and the CEOs that kind of like really took leadership rather than hiding behind their brand name those companies are thriving. Whereas a lot of companies who tried to kind of hide behind their own, cor- like CEOs who try to kind of hide behind their own corporation, everyone's, you know, frowning at them and thinking that they did a horrible job responding. Mm-hmm. And that's because, you know, when you get on stage and when you get on video, you just a get this kind of undue level of credibility. And I don't think that will last forever. I think it's because right now most people don't get on stage and most people don't get on camera. I think that will change as Gen Z becomes more of the dominant part of the workforce because Gen Z has grown up with YouTube and all of those Mm -hmm. things. But for now, you get this high level of credibility ascribed to you anytime you step on stage. And if you've done a good job when you're on stage or on camera or on a podcast, you really gain people's trust in a way that a lot of other mediums don't. And obviously, trust and credibility are two things that lead directly to sales. So I've seen for a lot of my clients that as they start getting on video more, their incomes really do increase because people trust them more and they see them as more of a credible industry leading expert. Yeah. Well, and I mean, with like doing video in your home or especially during this time, like you have a lot of control of your environment. So I feel like it's the best time to start practicing that um, because you can like, either edit the snippets of the parts that you aren't like a fan of, or you're, you know, really even just being aware of how you're communicating your topic is important. I think there's times where I'll be like driving or um, just gotten somewhere and I'll record like an idea that I had when I was driving like to a video. And I I've noticed that just doing that has really helped me just become more aware of how I communicate and without like having the filler words and the likes and the ums and all of those things that come along with public speaking. For sure. Yeah. And I mean, to Tisha's point earlier, the best thing you can do is practice, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of the reason why people are terrified of public speaking and they don't even try to engage with it is because they might go to like one or two conferences a year and those experiences are so novel. And when you only do a few, something a few times a year, it's, it's like so much pressure, right? (laughs) Whereas if you're in your living room every other day, just recording a quick video for IGTV, A, it reduces the pressure around that because it's something that you're in the habit of doing often. I find that the more I speak, the better speaker I am just because Mm -hmm. I'm more used to processing my thoughts and come up with great ways of saying things. But also, you know, 
going back to the stand-up comedians, like when stand-up comedians prepare their Netflix special, it's not like they just prepare it in a vacuum somewhere and then get on stage in some beautiful LA or New York theater and then just deliver all of these jokes that have never heard before. Like they go to all of these seedy clubs all That's over right. the place, <laughs> practice their jokes and pick which ones work and pick which ones don't. And you can do the same thing as a speaker by practicing on social media. So I like I when I post a video, I always kind of track which ones people are interested in and which ones people like, which ones people give me really great comments on because I know then if I'm doing some sort of bigger presentation, if I'm speaking inside of a mastermind or whatever, I can fall back on that content that I've already tested online and I know people like it. And so you can almost kind of create like a repertoire for lack of a better word online on social media by testing all of these different ideas, seeing what people like, and then knowing that, okay, they like X, Y, Z ideas. I can use those in other contexts on podcasts, on TV interviews, whatever. Mm -hmm. So what are some ways that, um, I know I'm in your speakeasy right now, so I kind of have an inside look on some of the things that you teach and you talk about the best version of you. Mm -hmm. So if if somebody's like, you know, well, you know, this is, this is my normal speaking voice, but then all of a sudden when they get on camera, hi, how are you doing today? And they're using this crazy cheesy voice. Yeah. Is, do you recommend that (laughs) crazy cheesy voice? (laughs) No, I don't. And I mean, I think the, one of the reasons why a lot of people don't want to become a public speaker or don't want to just do more public speaking is because they feel like they have to be fake. Like they almost feel like they have to be an actor playing like a different character. And especially now in personal branding world in the age of social media, that just makes no sense because when you think about it, most of your fans and followers will have fallen in love with you on social media where you're probably closer to your normal best version of yourself. Mm -hmm. And then if they show up to a live speaking engagement or if they hear you on a podcast and you're suddenly like a totally different over the top character caricature version of yourself, like that's the huge turnoff. It's such a weird thing for your audience to experience. And so really, I like to think of public speaking as a conversation rather than a performance, regardless of the venue. Maybe if you're Tony Robbins and you're in front of 10,000 people, you want to amp it up. But that's obviously not the situation that most of us find ourselves in when we're speaking. <laughs> so on, for everyone, I always advise to aim for like the best version of yourself you know, the version where you woke up on the correct side of bed, you had all the coffee, you drank all the water, you had all the right foods, like you're feeling great. That version of you is how you want to show up on stage and on camera so that your audience will fall in love with the real authentic version of you. You're not kind of creating this fake caricature, but they're still going to kind of fall in love with the best version of you, right? If you are having the worst day in the world and life sucks, maybe don't record a video. I think as you get more experienced, like I now know, like I I can have something horrible happen in the morning and I can be in the worst mode, but because I've practiced so much, I can just click into that better version of myself if I'm going on camera. But when you're just getting started, you know, don't worry about recording a video if you're in the worst mood ever, because that's probably not the right way to show up for your audience. (laughs) Exactly. Well, uh, what are some other things that as far as if somebody's like, but I don't even know what to talk about. Are there, are there tips and tricks that you could give to help people find subject matter or how they should even um, kind of build their talk or uh, structure it? Absolutely. So, I mean, when I work with my clients, the first thing I always start with is their main idea. And that is regardless of the venue. Even if you're making an IGTV video, I always still think, you know, what's the main idea I want to communicate in this video? And in terms of finding your idea, like a lot of people already have a good sense of what they want to talk about, but it's way too broad. So I always make sure that people narrow their ideas so that they're just a tiny little slice of information because anymore, most people are consuming your content in like three to 10 minute bites, right? They don't want the 90 minute long, everything you know about one subject kind of a talk anymore. Obviously, Ted is a perfect example of that. Ted, we're taking like, oftentimes just a tiny slice of someone's expertise that they've been building for 30 years. Mm -hmm. So 
first thing is if you already have an idea, make sure that it's not way too broad given the time limit that you're tackling. And then if you don't have an idea, there's a million places to look. So oftentimes I'll ask, you know, friends or family what they find interesting when I'm talking about my work. Obviously, we all have conversations about our work with our friends at game nights, at Sunday dinners, whatever. So oftentimes our friends are a good resource because they're kind of a stand-in for the audience. So they can sometimes clue you in on what they find really interesting or not. Um, and then also I think another really great way to start thinking about your ideas is to look at industry advice online. In, so just Google your industry and then flag the things that you really disagree with. So for me, for example, a lot of times the things that I'm speaking about the most on podcasts, in masterminds, et cetera, are the things like I've Googled public speaking advice plenty of times and there's a lot of things that I vehemently disagree with. And so those are the things that end up being really great topics for me, A, because I'm passionate about it and just I'm so annoyed that a lot of this advice exists online in like the first page of Google search results. Um, but B, it makes for great kind of conflict, right? Anytime you tell an audience that the way they're thinking about something is wrong, they're immediately roped in, for better or for worse. They might be <laughs> mad at you, but they want to know what you have to say. So I find that a lot of times the kind of controversy or like ways that you disagree with the industry is the best source of ideas. That's so interesting. I love that. <laughs> Get the conflict going right from the get-go. It's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> totally. And myth busting. Like when you look at, mm -hmm. when you look at it, a lot of the best, best Ted talks are myth busting talks, right? Mm -hmm. They start with something that you think you know to be true. Then they tell you that it's not true and explain why. Mm -hmm. Okay. What's been the toughest thing to get some of some of your clients to overcome? Uh, you know, is it just the mental block of they have this huge fear built up inside or um, they're, uh, because you've even coached people who have been speaking and performing for years. And so what are maybe some of the things that you've taught them to yeah. move their self forward? Totally. I mean, I have a few different answers to that question. So I think one of the hardest things that I have to deal with, which I never saw coming, is actually a lot of times the academics. And um, the reason why is because I, and I get this from non-academics too, is this kind of fear of like, what will my peers think? And so a lot of people are really hung up on, they don't want to speak in public, they don't want to go on podcasts, they don't want to put themselves on IGTV or on YouTube or on TikTok or get on stage because they have a paralyzing fear of judgment from their peers. So people who are in a similar job or a similar industry or whatever, and that really stops them from speaking their mind. And it's to their own detriment. Like I'm so mad about that. I'm mad at the entire academic industry because I think they're just breeding ground for that kind of ridiculous snobbery. Um, but really at the end of the day, the audience is not your peers, right? So like if you think about a TED speaker speaking to a broad audience on any subject, like I've, I've seen a ton of TED talks about Hollywood and whenever I watch them, to me, it feels like the most basic of basic information. I'm like, I've known this for years. Like, why are you even bothering getting on stage? <laughs> I don't actually think that. But, but the point is, like, if you watch a TED Talk from your industry, from your area of expertise, most of the time it is going to feel really basic. And that's because you're an expert in it. But most of the world is not an expert on your topic, right? And so you really have to think about which audience you're actually speaking to. Most of the time, it's not your peers. If it is your peers, you can obviously dive in deep and go from like kind of a deeper level of understanding. Everyone's already on the same page about kind of these basic concepts. So you can go further than that. But stop worrying about what your peers think. Your peers, honestly, are probably jealous of you. <laughs> mm -hmm. because I hear Definitely. from people all the time when I approach them about doing TEDx talks, they're always like, Oh, I don't know. What will my peers think? You know, my peers are probably judging me for doing a popular TEDx talk. And then of course, when I talk to their peers, their peers are like, Oh my God, I want to do a TEDx talk. Yeah. You know? So, 
it's a lot of professional snobbery and jealousy, and I'm not here for it. I think we need more people speaking up and sharing their best ideas rather than cowering in fear of their own peers. And then on the more experienced side, or even just in general, I find that a lot of times people have these amazing, amazing behind closed doors sort of ideas that they share with their closest colleagues and friends and family members, and they are just way too scared to go against the grain or go against, you know, the norm, right? And so a lot of my job is kind of getting people comfortable with saying those things and talking about those things because those things, the closed door conversations that you have, the kind of like real honest, like this is what's wrong with my industry. This is what's wrong with my clients. This is what's not working. This is why it's not working. All of those things that you just put on a corporate face and don't say in public those are the things that make the best talks. And those are also the things that move the culture, right? And so a lot of my job is to, a lot of times people will come to me with this kind of like light, fluffy idea. And I have to be like, wait a second, you have like this amazing opinion about your industry or about your job and you're just not ready or willing to share it. Now, obviously public speaking isn't therapy and I don't want people to just spill their guts on stage. But a lot of times those kind of like hidden opinions that you've been brewing for months or years or decades about your industry, that's the best content. And that's the content that's actually going to make an impact. Right. Mm, So good. Yeah. I mean, when I look at all of the TED and TEDx talks that I've worked on that have millions of views or like five plus million views, all of Mm -hmm. them are in some way controversial, Mm -hmm. right? They're, they don't they're not afraid to piss a few people off, right? Because that's how things go viral. You can't go viral on like a light, fluffy idea that everyone agrees with. You Mm -hmm. go viral on the ideas that people are like, oh my God, I had no idea. I wish I thought about that. Or even a lot of times hate watch, right? (laughs) Nothing like a good hate watch, right? (laughs) No. Are there any tips uh, that you give your clients to go viral? Or is that just a... let's hope, let's hope for the best. I think it's all of the above. Um, So I definitely give them tips. One tip is obviously just having a great idea in the first place. I definitely learned in Hollywood that you can't, you know, start with a terrible script and somehow come out the other end with an amazing movie. (laughs) So if you have a kind of boring idea or boring script and then you get on stage, even if you have the best body language and voice in the world, it's probably not going to succeed and it's probably not going to go viral. So really it all comes down to that planning and preparation in advance to make sure that your idea is really awesome and really pops. And then on top of that, especially if you're putting, I mean, I guess the only way for something to go viral is for it to be online. But if you're putting your talk online or putting a video online, just making sure that the title is really good is so important. I have seen many times talks that I thought were truly mediocre, but had a great title, go super viral, and vice versa. There have been plenty of talks that I've worked on that were phenomenal and life-changing, and sometimes the most highly rated talk at an event by the audience, and then they kind of have a so-so title, and they go nowhere. They get maybe like five, ten thousand 10,000 views rather than the millions that they deserve. So making sure you have a title that really piques people's interests is key. And if you ever have any doubt about how to write good titles, TED.com is a great resource. Their title title writers, oh my gosh, are phenomenal. They have amazing copywriters doing that. But if you look at the titles on TED.com, they all do a great job of piquing your interest enough to force you to click on the video but the title doesn't give it all away. So you kind of are forced to watch it in order to get the answer. And that kind of hits that natural, you know, puzzle solving instinct that all of us humans have. So the title is huge. And then I also always remind speakers that they should be shamelessly sharing their talks everywhere all the time over and over again. So like if you have a TEDx talk and you're wondering why you don't have that many views, you know, is it in your email subject line or uh, signature? Is it in your LinkedIn? Have you posted it on Facebook every week for the last five years? You should be posting <laughs> shamelessly about your talk because as we all know, organic reach on social media platforms right now, aside from TikTok, 
is terrible, right? And so you have to post it over and over again because you never know which tiny sliver of your audience has seen it, or maybe they have seen it, but then they forgot to watch it and you're by hitting them up again, you're gonna see it again. So getting that momentum just from your inner circle and from your colleagues and your networks can be huge. A lot of speakers don't realize that it's their job to start making their speech go viral. It's not a, if you post it, they will come kind of a situation. Mm -hmm. You have to do the legwork. That's such great advice because that is, I think, another thing that we have trouble with. We promoting ourselves and singing our praises kind of, and even just, yeah, yeah, Yeah. because we feel like, well, we don't don't want to bug people. I don't Mm. want, you know, I don't want people to think I'm just, you know, bragging about me all the time, me, me, me. And it's not that way. Cause like you said, you could post it five times and maybe I saw it once, you know? And so, uh, it's definitely, I mean, I've, I, there's so many things of, if, of, that my friends have posted that I've missed because there'll totally. be times where I'll see that. And, and even my daughter who I, you know, I see every post she does, but sometimes I'll miss a post. And the way I see it is because I go to her feed and I'm like, how did I miss that? How did I miss my grandkids? You know, it's yeah. like, no, oh, I got to see that. So totally. Um, when in doubt, not- share your TEDx talk with your mom to share because moms are generally very good at promoting yeah. things that their children do. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and ask people to share it too. Yeah. That's the other thing. It's, I know I have trouble doing that, but it's, uh, you know, it's definitely, the way that people hear about it. And that's how people have heard about that. You know, I'm always amazed at the people that we've got that are listening to this podcast. And it's like, but we have to remember to ask our friends to share it. We have to remember to ask our people that come on, our guests, ask them to share it. And that's why we're continuing to grow is because we're building that audience as it's being shared more and more. And, um, but it is one of those things. It's like, there's times where I feel like, oh my goodness, people are going to get so tired of me talking about the podcast, but it's like, it's got good information on it. People, you need to hear this stuff. So, and this has definitely been a great episode. And I do want to real quick talk about, you talked about how you can find out how to write good titles on TED.com, but uh, you have some amazing freebies. The Ultimate Guide, How to Get Booked to Speak at TEDx, How to Write a Speech that Acts Like a Pitch, The Top 7 TEDx Clicks and What... Um, cliches and what to do in the top seven clicks, top seven <laughs> TEDx cliches and what to do instead. I can't read my own writing. Yeah. Um, so you've got some amazing freebies. So where can people go to find those freebies? And then we've got our last two questions we want to ask you too. Yeah. So the best place to find them easily is to go to my Instagram bio and click the link there. It has all of my freebies, including a brand new one that's really suited for this moment in time, coronavirus, how to get started speaking from home. And, but if you want the quick version, my ultimate guide to getting booked to speak at TEDx is at TEDxGuide.com. And my how to write a speech that acts like a pitch is at Sneaky Pitch, mm. <laughs> pitch with a P, um, <laughs> dot com. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much for all of this. I think this is something that a lot of us need to hear. And I think we're going to start seeing a lot more people like speaking up about their industries and all of that just through IGTV and all of that. But um, I'm excited for them to get your tips and, and knowledge. But um, so the first question that we want always like to end every episode with is what is your definition of success? Um, I think I don't have a specific definition of success, but I think when I look at successful people, the really interesting thing is that it's kind of like a rising tide rises, raises all boats situation. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've noticed in my own families on both sides, my fiance's family and my family, that there are a few kind of keystone people who've been really successful and the entire family has risen up because of them. So to me, when you're successful, you're bringing other people along with you. I learned that in the film industry uh, time and time again. A lot of times, you know, one of my friends would get onto this amazing TV show and everyone would be so jealous, but then they would have the opportunity to bring their friends on that TV show too. Mm -hmm. So I think success doesn't happen alone. And when you're successful, it's your job to make sure that everyone else around you becomes successful too. 
Ooh, I, I love, love that. Ah, oh, that is so good. Well, the other question that we always end with is what are the three words that come to mind when you think about the word money? Definitely freedom, right? Mm -hmm. Money gives us the freedom to do all kinds of things, solve all kinds of problems. Uh, I would also say responsibility to my last point. I think when you earn a lot of money, you have a responsibility to, to your community and to your family to use that responsibly and make sure that you're giving back, which brings me to my third word, which is generosity. Love it. Yeah. Those are so great. Why don't you tell people, you've got an amazing course. Um, yeah. I, I'm in it right now, the speakeasy. It's amazing. Why don't you just give it, tell people a little bit about that and when they can look for it again? Sure. Yeah. The Speakeasy is my eight week long group coaching speaking program. It is amazing. It's designed for really, I mean, it's designed for business owners and entrepreneurs to accelerate their impact over the course of eight weeks. You both design a TED style talk, which you then deliver at a virtual summit. And along the way, you're having to create a ton of videos for social media. So the great thing about that is you're getting real-time instant feedback from your real audience during the program. You're not kind of doing the program in a vacuum. And the next time it's going to be offered is in the fall. So you can get on my wait list now if you go to my Instagram bio as well for that to be released. Awesome. And I highly yeah. recommend it. If you're, if you're looking to improve your speaking and looking for the um, the little kick to make sure you're getting, I'm, I, some people have probably noticed some probably haven't cause they've missed it and that's okay too. But I've definitely been trying to just hop on Instagram, um, just on stories more. And, uh, I've tried to make it real comfortable and casual. And just, even if I'm just like out for a walk, I'm just going to stop and mm -hmm. find a find a pretty bush in the background and speak and make yeah. myself do it. So, um, well, we're so excited to have you and thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you both so much. It's been such a pleasure and I'm excited to hear more about money from all the listeners. So tag me on Instagram. If you have any thoughts. Yes, Definitely. I I'm looking forward to having speaking grow all of our money. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's episode. The Money Made Easy podcast is here to educate, uplift, and empower you to feel confident in your financial decisions. Have topic requests or questions? Email or DM us on Instagram. Remember, you start by starting. Take a small and actionable step towards your financial goals. If you enjoyed this episode, please go give us a five-star rating and leave us a review and might as well hit that subscribe button while you're there. We'll see you next Money Monday.